want to invite you to turn back with me to the Word of God in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 28. And there we read, Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his own hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. And with this one verse, we have what some have called the philosophy of Christian labor or the philosophy of Christian work. Lord willing, we're going to see the positive, the negative, and the motive for this part of Ephesians 4. But before we do that, would you pray with me? Our Father, we come to you this morning and we ask you, Lord, to open this portion of your word to our understanding. Lord, help us to labor in that work you have set before us, that which is good, so that we might be the hands and feet of Jesus Christ to one another and to the world around us, so that we may have something to give those who are in need. We ask your blessing upon your word, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. So with each one of these sermons, beginning in verse 25, which address the character, the nature, and we might even say the expectation of the new man created according to God in true righteousness and holiness, I thought it helpful to remind us at the beginning of each one of these that we are being commanded, we are being drawn to obedience, and we should think of this in regard, in terms of gospel obedience or evangelical obedience. Brian Chappell has written these words in his commentary on Ephesians, and I think that they will be helpful to us. He says, Paul has already addressed how what we say, think, and do is not merely about self-promotion before God or self-protection from God. When you think of obedience, a Christian's obedience, much of our understanding immediately runs to these two areas that he has addressed. And it's these two areas in regard to Christian obedience, evangelical obedience, gospel obedience, whichever term you prefer, these two areas that we need to finally and ultimately lay to rest in understanding the expectations of Christ to obey Him and His Word. In obeying commands such as this, we are not promoting ourselves before God. Nor are we protecting ourselves from Him. Listen to this illustration. This is written by Anthony Carter. He says, When I was a young boy, I obeyed my parents because of what I thought they would do to me if I did not. But as I have grown older and matured, today I obey and honor my parents, not because I am of a fr- I am afraid of what they will do to me, but because now I realize all that they have done for me. This is the obedience of faith. 
This is gospel or evangelical obedience. We are seeking to obey God, not because we are afraid of what He will do to us if we do not. Rather, we obey Him because we are moved by all that He has done for us in Christ Jesus. I hope and pray that all of you can really and truly, myself included, sound a hearty and final amen to that point. So many believers get caught up in the fact, in their sanctification, in their assurance, their joy, are tied directly to these things of thinking that we obey to avoid consequence of God or to promote ourselves in His sight. And when our minds remain in that point, then our Christian lives are all over the board, scattered across with assurance, lack of assurance, joy, no joy, fear of consequence before God. Now we need to bring some balance to this. Obviously the scriptures tell us that if a Christian persists in disobedience to God, that God as a loving heavenly father in wisdom will bring chastisement upon that believer. But that is the extreme in this direction of that. And thank God for that, that He loves us enough to bring discipline when we need it. The main point of the thought here is that our obedience in these areas, in every area of Christian obedience, are used of God by His Spirit to promote in us conformity to Jesus Christ and promotes the grace of God in our life. You think of the two metaphors that Scripture uses to impress upon us our usefulness to one another and the world around us. The ones that rise to the surface most often and most prevalently are the metaphors of being salt, the salt of the earth, and the light of the world. And then we're told by Christ in the Sermon on the Mount that once salt loses its savor or its flavor, it's good for nothing but to be thrown out. And once a light is hidden under a basket, it is no longer good to be seen by those and to be useful to them. So I want to bring those two metaphors and bring them back here to Ephesians chapter 4 and this whole expectation of a Christian's obedience to commands like these. Put away lying. Be angry and do not sin. Let him who steal, steal no longer. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. And so on. All the way through the end of this epistle. All the way through the end of chapter 6. I think we could say it in this way. The salt loses its flavor and becomes good for nothing to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men when there is no fruit of grace and salvation resulting in obedience to gospel commands. Again, obedience issuing from a love for Christ and a desire to represent Him well, which results in holiness and conformity to the image of Christ. Maybe I could summarize it in this way. We are the most salty as Christians when we are the most obedient 
to gospel commands. Let me see if I can make the connection. If as Christians we have not been obedient to these things, and let's just stay right here in this paragraph that ends Ephesians chapter 4, if as Christians we are still categorized by lying, rage, theft, filthy speech, anger, clamor, if we are not kind, if we are not tender-hearted, and we are not forgiving, then how, quote, salty are we going to be to the world around us? Not very. Because we will be exhibiting the same characteristics and traits of an unredeemed people. To use the other metaphor, the light of Christ in us is hidden and placed under a basket when we deny what Paul calls the grace of God that has brought salvation, which also is teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and then positively to live soberly, righteously, and presently, and present, and righteously and godly in the present age. So let me see if I can say this in another way. The light of Christ in us is obscured. It's as if we are taking the light of Christ in us and placing it under a basket when we are not obedient to these gospel commands of putting away lying, anger, theft, corrupt speech, and so on. And remember, all of these are giving answer to the question, what does this new man created according to the image of God look like? What are the characteristics of one that has been converted? What are the characteristics of one that have that has been given a new heart, that has faith in Christ and is seeking to honor Him in every aspect and way of life. To go back to that verse that Paul wrote to Titus in the second chapter, this is an aspect of grace that we don't often speak enough of. The expectation of grace. The instruction of grace. Remember, Paul said the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared, which also teaches us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. The grace of God that comes into the life of a Christian is not hands off. It is not anything now goes. To be in the grip of grace, however, comes with great expectation. If we need further proof, all we have to do is turn to the pages of Scripture and read the Sermon on the Mount or any of Paul or Peter or John's epistles, any of the epistles of the New Testament, are all pressing this type of gospel obedience upon us unto the glory of God. So verse 28 stands alone, and in it we find the negative command to put away stealing, the positive counterpart to labor in what is good, and then the motive, so that we will have something to give those in need. Now, depending on which translation of the scriptures you have, the first part of this verse may read a little differently. Verse 28 begins in the New King James and the King James by saying, let him who stole steal no longer. But if you're reading the New American Standard, it says something different. It says, 
basically let him who steals, who is actively participating in theft of some kind. That's important because remember back in the beginning of Ephesians chapter 1, this epistle is addressed to saints and those who are faithful in Christ Jesus. So so much has been written and it really distresses some to think that Paul here is addressing Christians who steal. I think that is exactly who Paul is addressing. Just like he addressed last week, we saw Christians who are prone to be angry and not sin. Just like the week before, he addressed Christians who are prone to lying. And like in future weeks, Christians who are prone to corrupt words proceeding out of their mouths and those who have not put away bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, evil speaking, and all of these types of things. I think Paul realized the truth that Christians continue to struggle in sin. Even the sin of stealing. Now here we have to see how far-reaching and pervasive this thought and concept, how far it runs. Not many Christians who name the name of Christ are blatantly going to walk into a store and fill their pockets with things on the shelves and then make their way out. That's the way we most often think of theft and stealing. There are far more subtle ways to steal. And I think Paul is bringing all of these to the table. I won't seek to try to make application to all of these more subtle ways that we steal because I know that we don't have to think too hard about ways that we can take something that is not our own and then treat it as it is our own. That's the definition of stealing. To claim something that is not yours as your own and then seek to use it as your own. So this expectation and command extends to all Christians in every sphere of life. And maybe we could make a point of application one or two just to show how pervasive this is. The temptation that a Christian has to not be completely honest on a tax return. The temptation that a Christian may have to take something from an employer that they think is rightfully theirs and is owed to them and that the employer is never going to notice anyway, all of this extends and trickles down into this eighth commandment that thou shalt not steal. And so when we look at the 28th verse, I think certainly Paul is addressing Christians in Ephesus. Remember, they, like us, were drawn out of pagan practice, they were drawn out of things that were accepted culturally, stealing one of them, but yet we are altogether different, and Paul begins this negative aspect of verse 28 by saying, let him who steal, steal no longer. We have to understand that stealing and theft of any kind is a product of of the fall of man. It's deceptive. 
But as is the case in all of these six or so areas in this paragraph, not only does Paul give a negative, he gives a positive. And it's the positive command and the motive that I want to deal with as we continue in this verse. Because the negative, I think, is straightforward. It's very clear. If you're stealing in any way, stop. Do this for this reason. Notice the second part of verse 28. Rather, but rather, let him labor. Let him work. And it's important to note here that while stealing is a product of the fall, work is not a product of sin. You'll remember before Genesis chapter 3, before the fall of man, the Lord created Adam. He put him in the garden to tend and keep it. He created him to work. Now obviously, there was no curse upon man's work at this point. There was no sweat of his brow. There was no thorns that produced and made his work more difficult. But work in and of itself is not a product of the fall. And it is this to which Paul is commending to the Christian. It's interesting the word that Paul uses here for labor. Let him labor. This is a word that depicts a toiling labor to the point of exhaustion. That, inquire, that acquires, requires all of your faculties. And we shouldn't confine it just to a manual physical labor. Though that would be included. It is a laboring to work. Notice Paul qualifies it with your own hands. And even there, I don't think we are to re restrict the understanding of this passage to, to work that we actually perform with our hands, building something, creating something. I think it's far more reaching than just those things. The concept that Paul is drawing us to and expecting our obedience in is the exhortation of effort. Now think about that. Stealing, which is a characterization of the old man before conversion, requires little effort. The new man, however, is expected to labor and work and to exert much effort. The total opposite ends of the extreme. The motive that we are given is so that he may have something to give him who has need. And I love what John Stott says about this verse and the, the entirety of it. None but Christ can take a burglar and make him into a benefactor. That's the transformation. That's the gospel picture that is given here in this verse. Once categorized by theft and stealing, dishonesty, now this new man is created according to the image of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now what does this man do? He goes out and he works and he labors so that he may have something to give those who are good. Notice what's missing here 
that you might find in other places in the scriptures as it concerns stealing. And that is restitution. You think of Zacchaeus, for example. Stealing from his own people, exerting taxes in an unjust way. He encounters Christ. He is changed by Christ. And what does he immediately do? He makes restitution for his thievery and for his theft. Some make much of the point here that Paul says nothing of restitution. My understanding of this is just that Paul is hitting the high points of the character of those who are new in Christ, created according to God, and then in other places in Scripture, as we piece together the entire character of the new man, we find that oftentimes restitution is the right follow-up to a change of heart. The Holy Spirit will take that truth, apply it to our heart, and no doubt in some of our lives, He will work so mightily and greatly to put, put His finger, so to speak, on that point and area of our life where restitution needs to be made for things that we, as the salt of the earth and the light of the world, as the new creation of Christ, have taken unjustly from someone that which was not ours. The ending of this verse, the motive. Notice that Paul does not say, let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him work so that he will have plenty for himself or for herself. But he says... Quit stealing and work hard that which is good and profitable so that you will have something to give him who has need. From the Old Testament all the way through the scriptures, one thing that we see over and over again is that God makes provision and is concerned for the poor. For those who are in need. In the Old Testament, the reapers of the field were told to leave some intentionally in the field so that the poor could come and glean in the field. And that was at God's command. So when we read this, this Christian philosophy of work, the words of John Gill, listen to what he says. The Christian should not labor to prodigally spend or covetously to lay up, but he should labor so that he can cheerfully distribute. Can I read that again? John Gill. The Christian should not prodigally spend. What does he mean by that? He means not just go out and spend what you have, what you have earned that is rightfully yours, that you should not prodigally spend that on 
the entertainment and the things of this world. Now let's bring balance. Does that mean that you can never do that? No, that's why he uses the word prodigally. Bringing to mind the prodigal son who went out and wasted his inheritance on sensual living. So the second part, not should the Christians should not prodigally spend or covetously lay up. It's interesting that some of the, the wealthiest people, when asked this question, how much is enough, the answer often comes in some form a little more. Just a little bit more. The third part of what John Gill says is so that we, or he, should have something to cheerfully distribute. So here is what some summarize as the Christian philosophy of work. <coughs> work what is good with your own hands. Labor to provide for your needs and the needs of those around you. Now, that runs contrary, depending on the way that you make application of it, to much of what we call you know, the American dream, right? But I think the two can come together when we understand exactly the motive. The motive here in verse 28 is to be one who can provide for need, which implies that Christians are to sense need around them. Every need that is met does not have to be met by someone holding a sign saying, please help, I'm in need. And I think the first and primary application of what Paul is getting at here is to help other Christian brothers and sisters who are in need. Secondarily, or somewhere down the line, I think a Christian's giving extends to those that are not in Christ, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't at times, and we shouldn't at times, pay attention to those who are holding the sign. Obviously, great wisdom is needed. I'm not saying that we should just frivolously hand money. But let's get back to the main point, and that is to help other brothers or sisters who are in need. So that brings something to the table that we have to ask ourselves. Are we the type of believers that sense need in other Christians? Are we the type that don't close our ears to their need or to see obvious signs before us that this brother or sister is in need of my help and then to recognize that what we have been given is a stewardship from God? And there is something that must be combated here in the heart and the mind of the Christian when a counter when something counter to this truth may run to the forefront, but I have worked hard with my hands. I have labored and sweat and toiled with my own hands doing this to lay up for myself and my children. And all of these things are right and good, but we can't remember that a stewardship recognizes that even the ability that you have 
to labor and to work is given you by God. Let him take it away and we'll keenly sense it. Let him remove from us the ability to labor and work that which is good and we will keenly feel that he has taken this away from us. So let's be as quick on the other side to recognize that he has given us the ability. And then let's also notice in verse 28, in the motive, not only is the expectation that the Christian man or woman will labor working with their hands so that he will have something to give him who is in need, let's realize that those who are in need in the Christian church, in the Christian family, are a viable category of believers. And the scriptures demand and expect that Christians who are in need, who find themselves in the corporate body of Christ, their needs will be met by fellow believers. Well, you go back to the early chapters of Acts. Some say we should return to that type of communal living where we sell everything that we own, throw it into one big pot, and live out of that pot together. I don't think that's the right application of this at all. Rather, let your mind go to 1 John. You see your brother in need, and you close your heart against him. And you don't help him in his need. How can the love of Christ abide in you? How can the love of Christ abide in you? Christians should be the most generous people in the world. Because we have a real understanding, we have a real theology and doctrine of giving. We have all types of biblical principles that we can bring and have those principles inform our minds and our hearts as to what is expected of us as a Christian. And then we can go to verses like what Paul would write to Timothy and verses he would write to Titus. If a man won't work, he won't eat. See, that's another one of the principles that we have to bring to this verse, Ephesians chapter 4, 28. Those that are in need here in the 28th verse are not those who are lazy, slothful, refusing to do their ex what is expected of them to provide for their own families. That person, Paul, exercises great discipline upon them. Those who are in need here are those who are doing what they can. Those that are doing what is expected of them to work, but yet who still, at the end of it all, have less than what they need. Not less than what they want, less than what they need. And other believers and Christians, blessed by God, are to be generous and cheerfully distributing to them. 
That's what the verse says. Read it in its entirety again. Let him who steals, or him who stole, steal no longer. The positive counterpart, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good. Notice the qualifying part of this verse. Work with your hands what is good. There is some type of work. Some work is not honoring to the Lord. It may qualify in the material in worldly realm as labor and work. But in the end, it is not God-honoring work. So that's why Paul puts the qualifier up on it. Let him work what is good. That he may have something to give to him who has need. This corresponds to the man, the new man, which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Ian Hamilton is a name that I've mentioned several times in the last few weeks. I think he hits the nail on the head when he says, in summoning believers to now be what they truly are in Christ, it is remarkable that Paul is so basic. Have you thought of that? How basic these expectations are? How basic is the expectation that a new man created according to God in righteousness and holiness will not lie? How basic it is that he will not be categorized by anger and wrath or stealing corrupt speech. I mean, aren't these the very things that we teach our children from the very earliest moment that they can understand our speech? And yet it is these simple expectations that are placed upon believers. And yet how often do we fail in these simple, most basic expectations? If this does anything, it should convince us that if we are ever to honor and glorify God, we are in continual need of the Spirit of God working in and through us. Or we cannot even accomplish the most basic expectations. How much ability do you and I possess in our natural selves to do these things? Zero. Zero. But on the other hand, indwelt by the Spirit of God, we have been given everything that we need to be obedient to such commands. What do we do when we fail? What do we do when we fail? Do we become downcast and dejected and kick ourselves and say, I couldn't even be obedient in this most basic issue of lying. Here I have lied again. 
even though it was what we would call a small white lie tainting the truth just a bit, but yet the Spirit of God, through conviction of the Word, comes to your conscience and rests upon that, what do you do? What do you do when your anger is not righteous? When you are angry and you do sin, and the sun has set many times on your wrath, when you have given place to the devil over and over and over again as a Christian, there's only one thing that you can do. And it is what the conviction of the Spirit is driving you to, what it is driving me to, to confess your sin before the Lord, knowing that He is faithful and just to forgive. You know, John again says, if anyone sins, he's not writing there in reference to unbelievers. He's writing there to the Christian who is struggling with remaining sin. You have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Confess your sin. Repent of your sin. Turn from it. Turn to Christ. Receive forgiveness. And wake up tomorrow to a new day. To live unto the glory of God which may very well end in the same way you're confessing your sin before God. And what this does again is highlights the forgiveness that is to be found in Him. Aren't you thankful that there is no bottom to the well of Christ's forgiveness? You will not exhaust it. We will never experience a time in life when we come to Christ and seek mercy, grace, and forgiveness and see the declaration of insufficient funds. Not sufficient funds. Christ has more than we would ever need. He is full of grace and truth and mercy and love and forgiveness. But according to Paul, here and many other places, according to the scriptures in general, he is also full of expectation. He expects of those that he has saved to live like the new people they really are unto the glory of God. So the verse again in closing let him who stole steal no longer but rather let him labor working with his hands what is good that he may have something to give him who has need. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for the salvation that is ours in Christ. We're thankful, Lord, for this aspect of our new nature. 
that we should no longer be taking what is not ours and using it for our own ends. But as new creatures in Christ, we should labor and toil and work that work which you have set before us so that we can provide for our own needs, the needs of our family and for the needs of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that we might be ministers, ministers of mercy towards those who are yet outside of Christ. Father, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, come and teach us the right balance of these things. Use our conscience before you, informed by the Word of God, enlivened by your Spirit. Lord, help us to be those who sense real need in the brethren and be willing and cheerfully distribute of what you have given us recognizing, Lord, that it is all yours. That anything that we have has been given to us by you. Lord, use us in this world as salt and light. Help us to be more and more sanctified. Help us to more and more be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Help us to be useful and profitable servants. Unto your praise, honor, and glory, we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.